Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that your son came and laid down his life for us. But not as his friends at first, God, but as his enemies. Lord, that we, we by nature, were objects of your wrath because of our sin. But you and your grace and your mercy and your love for us, you came and you died for us. That we may live forever with you. God, we love you. That's our message. That's our story. And we thank you for it. And God, may we be bold enough to proclaim it. God, I love you. God, I pray that this morning, as our hearts have been tuned to Jesus Christ, God, that even now, Father, as we dig into your word, that through your Holy Spirit, our hearts would be even more in tune with Jesus Christ. That in this moment, Father, we would devote our minds to you, that our minds may receive the instruction, that our hands may go out and do the action, Father, out of obedience and out of love, because you are worth it, and you are worthy. And so, Father, I pray in this time, God, that you would speak through me as I stand upon the authority of your word behind the cross, so that you may receive all of the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. So go ahead and turn over to that. Our, our, our message today is called The Heart of Obedience. Uh, as you're turning there, I remember a story of one of the most memorable summers uh, for me. One of my most uh, memorable summers was when I was 18 years old. After my freshman year of, of college, I went, went to work as a Christian counselor at, at a camp called King's Camp in Mer Rouge, Louisiana. A little tiny town called Mer Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, and I don't know what Murray means, but I know Rouge means red, so Mur Red, <laughs> Louisiana, uh, and it made Wesson seem like a giant metroplex, okay? I mean, just a tiny little hole-in-the-wall town that all that really was in it was cornfields and this camp. Uh, and, and two things really, really stuck out for me that summer. One of, you, one of them, which I've shared with you several times, is, is the Lord called me into the ministry uh, during that summer. Uh, but the second thing that I distinctly remember from that summer is I got sick. I mean, I got sick as a dog. Excuse me, <laughs> that sick. Uh, I got sick as a dog. When I, when I first uh, started getting sick, I remember I had a low-grade fever, and, uh, and I was coughing a lot. And so what does an 18-year-old with a low-grade fever and coughing a lot do? I ignored it. <laughs> and I just said, okay, whatever, I'll just keep on keeping on. Well, the symptoms uh, continued to get a little worse and a little bit worse, and so uh, I upped the ante a little bit, and I decided that I would take care of it. I, I took Tylenol and cough syrup and decided that this was going to be the cure uh, to my problems until one morning I finally I woke up, and I rolled out of the bed and just started throwing up everything that was inside of me. I just absolutely uh, lost it on that morning. And, and at that point, it, it dawned on me, 
I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> this, is, this is an issue. I need to go to the doctor. So I get to the doctor. They had this doctor set up to where I didn't have to go to the ER. Uh, but with the camp, they had this doctor set up. Uh, and I get to go to the doctor's office. And the first thing that he tells me is, why did you wait so long to come in? And then he said something that I was kind of dreading for him to say, but I knew was around the corner. You need to go home. You need to go home. Now, going home wasn't so easy because Murrouge, Louisiana, is not next door to DeRitter, Louisiana. There's about a three-and-a-half-hour gap uh, between the two places. So I had to uh, get a ride because I didn't have my own car at the time. I had to get a ride, and, and while I'm sick, so, so Carly gets the news, and, of course, she's excited about it. Her boyfriend gets to come home, and so uh, she, gets, she gets the call, and she jumps in the car, and so I'm waiting for three-and-a-half hours back at King's Camp, and then she comes and picks me up. We get all her stuff. That takes about half an hour. And then I take another three and a half hours to get back to DeRitter. So I've been waiting around now with this sickness as bad as it was with no extra treatment to it for seven and a half hours. And by the time that I actually got home, by the time that uh, I had followed the doctor's orders to get home, home was no longer a good option. It was time to go to the hospital. And so we got to DeRitter, and we went to Borgard Memorial Hospital, and I went to the ER, and they found out that I had two viruses competing for my body <laughs> at the same time. And I was extremely sick. But looking back on it, the reason that it ever got to that point at all, the reason it ever got to that place, is because when I found out I was sick, I only treated the symptoms instead of searching for the cause. And as we, as we conclude this series on Jonah, we, we, we jumped into Jonah chapter 4 last week, and we did the whole, the whole uh, chapter, and we're going to do the whole chapter again this week, just kind of from a different angle. Uh, but, but as we saw last time in Jonah 4 chapter 1, or Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, we see that Jonah is displeased with the mercy of God, and in turn he becomes angry with God. But the reality is, these are just symptoms. These are just expressions of something deeper that is going on within Jonah's heart. There's a bigger problem with Jonah. And we explore it this morning because I think it's a problem that we very well may share with him. So let's, let's dive back into the Word. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, starting with verses 1 and 2. It says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, the problem with chapter 4 is chapters 2 and 3. See, in chapter 2, we have Jonah, and he's inside the fish, right? And he repents of his sins, and he tries to return uh, to God. And, and so what we see is, is this, okay, God, I'm turning from what, what has happened in my life, and I'm praising you for the salvation that you give me. We see this in chapter 2, and we'll hit on that in a little bit. But then we get to chapter 3, and we see that God, or excuse me, Jonah responds to God's mercy from chapter 2 by obedience in chapter 3. And then we see God acting out on Jonah's obedience by saving all of Nineveh, right? We, we, we've discussed this. Where the problem comes in is when we get to chapter 4. 
And we get to chapter 4 and we see that Jonah's heart is not following what God did. Jonah's heart, even though his obedience followed what God did for him, Jonah's heart was not following along with what God in turn did for Nineveh. Now again, Jonah's anger, Jonah's Jonah's true heart is expressed in displeasure and anger towards God, but the deeper issue is revealed in verse 2. So let's reread verse 2. He said, he, He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. That is, I knew this about you, and I didn't like it about you. In this situation, this was not a good thing for me to know about you. He says, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Here's the picture. What's going on in Jonah's heart, the problem with Jonah here, and the reason he has expressed himself in displeasure and anger towards God is because he did not value what God values. He didn't value the same things that God values. And let me say this. Jonah has a lot of similarities to us. We've said that a lot as well. But we see here, Jonah was a saved man. Jonah was someone who was condemned into sin, someone who was headed toward death, and then he experienced the mercy of God. He was completely unable to rescue himself, and he was completely dependent on God to pull him through. And every one of us in here, if we call ourselves a Christian, are in the same fish. We were condemned to spiritual death in our sins. And in God's grace and mercy, Jesus rescued us. We could not do it on our own. We are completely and totally dependent upon Him. But there's more than that. Jonah became obedient to God. Jonah recognized that his gift was purely a gift from God. It was given to him. And this was a gift of life. And he responded to this gift of life with obedience. We see in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, What I have vowed, I will make good. And then he goes ahead in in chapter 3 and actually does make good of his vows. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we strive for obedience. We recognize the gift of eternal life that God has blessed us with by His grace, and we respond in obedience. Here's the problem. We get to chapter 4, and we see that Jonah's obedience was not fueled by desire, but it was fueled by duty. Jonah's obedience was not fueled by desire, but it was fueled by duty. Now let me start by saying this. There's nothing wrong with duty. I I want my soldiers and my military to have a strong sense of duty. Okay? There's nothing wrong with duty. I want all people to do the right thing if for no other reason than simply it is the right thing to do. But we know in Scripture, throughout Scripture, that we see this truth preached over and over and over again. That God is more concerned with our hearts. God is more concerned with our motives than He is simply concerned with our actions. So obedience in and of itself is a good thing. But sometimes when it comes to the kingdom value system, good is not good enough. J.D. Greer put it like this. God isn't just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that grows from desire. An obedience fueled by love. It's kind of like the child uh, who throws a temper tantrum when they're told to clean their room. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you're still going to make that child clean their room. They're going to clean their room. But even when they get the job done, even when they've accomplished the task that you have given them to do, are you as a parent pleased with that child? No. No, because their attitude was awful. And that's why the most popular statement in my house right now is happy heart, happy heart, do, do everything with a happy heart because we, we're, we're trying to train our children in that way. And likewise, God doesn't just want us to clean our rooms. God wants us to want to clean our rooms. And the only way that's ever going to happen is when we value what He values because we love Him. And the only way that's ever going to happen is when we value Him supremely because of His love for us. So let's reverse that. Let's take that in opposite order. Let's take that from love to desire, okay? We are moving from a, a God who loves us to desiring to do the things of God, okay? Here, here we go. First off, it, God's love for us is always the starting point, okay? God's love for us is the starting point here. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right? And so it starts with the love of God, and we cannot separate the love of God from the cross of Calvary. Okay? We cannot separate these two things, and we cannot separate the cross of Calvary from God's wrath. We are, as I prayed earlier, we are objects of God's wrath. And we are the rightful recipients of spiritual everlasting death. But in the greatest demonstration of divine love ever, ever, Jesus bore God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. And because of that, because of what Jesus did for us, we love him. And we value Him supremely. We love Him because He first loved us. This is 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. And we are only able to love God because we are loved by God. There has never been a baby born who loved his good parents before his good parents loved him. These parents brought this child to life. These parents sustained this child's life. These parents cared for this child out of their love. And they did this long before the baby ever could respond back to them. But over time, that baby recognizes that love. Over time, that baby recognizes who his parents are and, and how much the, that he or she is, is loved. And that parent becomes more valuable to that child than any other thing in the entire world. And why? Because he has responded in love to the love that he first received. And so it starts with God's love. God loves us immensely, right? God loves us immensely. And then out of that love, we are responding to Him in love. Because we have been loved, we love. And then when we value God supremely, because of our love for Him, we value Him. And when we value God supremely, we value what He values. Do you know what I do not value? I do not value the beach. <laughs> Just to be honest with you, I do not value the beach. All right, uh, The beach to me is hot. 
Uh, it's a hot place. It is a sandy place. It's a place where I always sunburn and I get exercise that I did not want. It is harder for me to go from point A to point B on a beach than it is on any other kind of surface in the world, okay? And so I, it is a struggle for me. And, and, and when I am hot and when I am sandy and when I am sunburned and I want some relief from all of that, what I decide to do is go get in the ocean. And so I have to cross this sandy, beachy terrain, get the exercise that I don't desire to go into a water that is going to burn my eyes and filled with animals that want to eat me. I, no, thank you. I, I don't want the beach. But you know what I do value? I value my wife and I value my kids. And though I'd rather go golfing <laughs> and though I'd rather go to the movies, they love the beach for some unconceivable region, reason. They, they love the hot and the sweat and the sand and, and deadly creatures. They, they love this. But because I value them, I value what they value. And how much more does this apply to God? How much more does this apply to God? On both ends, I want to show you something really cool from Scripture. First off, this is from our end. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I desire, this is the desire that has been born in us, I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I value you, so I desire to be a part of what you're doing. I desire, I value the things that you value. But that, that's, that's great, and that's what we've been talking about. We've been pushing from God's love all the way to that point. But there's something really, really cool that Scripture teaches us, but that God sustains this desire for us or on our behalf on His end. So we have this desire because of what God has done for us. But once we have this desire, God sustains it for us. 1 Chronicles 29, 17 and 18. This is David. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and, and with honest intent. Now listen to this. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. So we have this picture right here that the people of God are willingly serving the kingdom of God. They are valuing the things that God values and following suit and doing these things willingly. Now let's, let's continue this just a little bit. He says, O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. David prays a prayer to God. He says, these people are serving you willingly. They are loving you and they are valuing you and they are valuing what you value. Keep it in them. Keep it in them, God. You, and and this, is, this is what we learn if we take that to a new covenant. We take it and apply it to today. God is willing and God is able to take what we have, that desire in us, and to sustain it through Jesus Christ. And the conclusion is, when we value, or we will value what God values, when we value God supremely. And this is where Jonah's heart went awry. This is where Jonah's heart got off path. We saw last week he valued his people and he valued his reputation more than he valued God's will. And because of this, we see a dramatic change in his attitude. A turn for the worse. Let's see in verse 3. It says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Think about this. 
just a short time before this, if we're in chapter 2, if we, we've just not read, you know, 20 verses or something like that, if we're in chapter 2, Jonah is praising God for saving his life, right? He has been rescued. He has been swallowed by a giant fish, and he's in a fish praising God for saving his life, okay? This is, this is an extreme picture of, of God's mercy. This is an extreme picture of gratitude for what God has done for him. But now we get a chapter later, or a, a little over a chapter later, and we, what do we see? He's asking God to kill him. God, thank you for saving me, but now take my life. Now clearly, 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 this is an emotional moment for Jonah. And I want us to see two things. First off, it's interesting to see how God responds. It's interesting to see how God responds. God doesn't oblige, okay? God doesn't say, oh, well, that's what he said to do, so boom, you know. Uh, our God is a God of mercy all the time. Even in our weak moments, in those moments where we desire to turn away from God, when we are struggling and we don't understand anything, or our life is falling apart around us, God is still a God of mercy. God is still a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. God is still a God who does not desire to send calamity on His people. Just because you go out there in anger and throw, wave your fist at God and say, God, smite me now. I don't care anything about you anymore. It's all over. God wants to see you repent. He doesn't want to see you perish. And so we serve a wonderful, patient, loving God. But the second thing I want you to see is how quickly we lose the joy of our salvation when our hearts are not in line with God. How quickly... We lose the joy of our salvation when our hearts are not in line with God. It is the most miserable existence in the world for a follower of Jesus who has ceased to follow Jesus. It's the most miserable existence in the world for that person who says, I am a follower of Jesus, who not just says I'm a follower of Jesus, but who is actually a follower of Jesus who has decided to turn and follow the ways of the world, to turn and follow his own path instead of following Jesus. In fact, you even see David, a man after God's own heart, struggle with this, this same battle. In Psalm chapter 38, I want to read to you what he said. Psalm 38, 1 through, 1 through 8, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has been overwhelmed, or excuse me, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. You see, when those who are followers of Jesus begin to follow something else, the weight of God's discipline begins to fall on them. That's what we saw in Jonah chapter 1. The weight of God's discipline, when we turn to something else, begins to fall on us, and we are absolutely miserable. And when we lose our joy in Christ, we lose our mercy. 
Jonah had made a full 180 degree turn in his response to God's mercy on Nineveh. God had been completely merciful to forgive Jonah of his sins, but he would have nothing to do with it when God would forgive Nineveh of their sins. Jonah was completely grateful when God spared his life, but he would have nothing to do with it when God spared the life of the Ninevites. J.D. Greer says, A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity is the indication that you are out of touch with the grace of God in your own life. So I ask you, how is your forgiveness? How is your forgiveness against those who you do not deem worthy of forgiveness? And how is your generosity of those who you deem not worthy to receive anything? How is your forgiveness and how is your generosity toward others? Because if you find yourself severely struggling in these areas, these are, again, symptoms that you may have a bigger problem, that you have lost your joy because you have turned away from Christ. Here's the beautiful thing. How do, we, how do we determine, you know, someone who has turned away and started to follow the other path? How do we say, well, this person is just is a Christian that has gone astray? Or, or we say, this person is not a Christian at all. If you don't follow Jesus, then you're not, then you're not a Christian. So how do, we, how do we determine between the two? What, what do we say on this one hand, yes, you are a Christian, but you've just fallen away. On the other hand, you're not a Christian and you haven't fallen away. And the answer, I think, lies in verse 4. God will not allow His children to be in sin and go unchecked. He will not allow His children to turn from Him, live a life of sin without calling them down on it. And that's what Jesus, or excuse me, that's what God does here in verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Have you any right to be angry? And then he goes on in verses in the, in the rest of the chapter to teach a lesson to Jonah. And this is the lesson of the vine. Let's, let's read verses 5 through 8. It says, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And so what we have here is the lesson of the vine. God made a vine grow for Jonah's comfort. He enjoyed it for a little bit, and it said, and Scripture teaches that he was happy. Yay, things are nice right now. I am so happy. And then, Scripture teaches that God killed the vine, particularly on purpose, for the purpose of Jonah's discomfort. God was testing Jonah's heart, because he knew Jonah's heart was still wicked, even though in the easy moment he was able to hide that thing, in in the grand scheme of things, he was still bitter at God. And, and And it came out. He becomes raging mad again, saying, Ah, I wish I was dead. I want to say real quick, I can relate to Jonah here. I can relate to Jonah here. Last summer, the air conditioner in my car went out. And it's midsummer, Mississippi. And so we, we decide, okay, immediately we have to go get this thing fixed. This, there will be no riding around in a car without an air conditioner, midsummer, Mississippi. And so we went and we had the thing fixed. 
And over the next several weeks, I don't know exactly what happened, what was wrong with it, but the air conditioner would cut off and it would cut on. The air would blow the whole time, but sometimes it would be cool and sometimes it wouldn't. Now, when it wasn't cool, or excuse me, when it was cool, I was happy. <laughs> I was fine. I was, I was gleeful and I could make any trip that you wanted me to make. When it wasn't working, I wasn't happy. <laughs> I wasn't pleased. I wasn't fine. I was very, very frustrated. Now, the only reason I tell you that story is because I want to humanize Jonah here a little bit. I want to make Jonah a real person to you. See, it's easy to disregard his crazy emotions here. Oh, you made this plant come up and then you made it die, and I just want to die. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's real easy to disregard his emotions as just a crazy person. But even every one of us has to admit that it's very, very frustrating to lose our conveniences. When our air goes out, when our power goes out, when our tire goes flat, it is very inconvenient and very frustrating to lose our conveniences, even if we had nothing to do with it and there's nothing we can do about it. It's still extremely frustrating. And so we have this picture of Jonah. And I, again, the only reason I do that is so you see Jonah as a human, so you can relate to Jonah. And then, but God uses this situation. God uses this situation of taking away a convenience. And God uses our situations of taking away our conveniences to ask this next question. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And then Jonah passionately responds to God with his cause, I do! I do, and I want to die. I am angry enough about this to die. Now to me, it seems reasonable to have sympathy on Jonah. To me, because I can, I can relate to him, it seems reasonable to me to have sympathy on Jonah. I like the way Spence Shelton put it. He said, It does seem difficult at this point to understand how one could worship a God who saves his enemies but makes his life miserable or makes life miserable for his own people. And so I can, in a moment there, recognize, oh, I'm in the middle of my situation, I'm in the middle of my struggle, and everything seems to be going wrong. God, where are you? I'm mad. I don't want any of this. I can sympathize with Jonah. But then, God lowers the boom. <laughs> then God brings out the truth. Let's read verses 10 and 11. He says, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. You, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Here's what he says. You're upset about this vine? You had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it growing. You had nothing to do with its health. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But you're absolutely going crazy. You're losing your mind over this very circumstantial, very, very... This thing that has really nothing to do with you. But when I show you something of eternal significance, when I show you a great, great city, who every member in it is going to spend eternity in hell apart from me, you could not care less. We must value what God values. Why? Why, church? Why are we so passionate about the things that do not matter? 
and the things that do not last. We are so wrapped up in our sports. I admit, I'm guilty. We scream at umpires and we yell at TVs. We are so concerned with others' opinions, what they think, and it it modifies the way that we act. It changes the way that we talk. It changes the way that we dress. We are so consumed by keeping our schedule that we get fistfight mad when there's a gridlock on the interstate or or that we miss a flight. And we are obsessed, absolutely obsessed with our stuff. We always have to have the right car or the right boat or the right house or the right TV or the right gun or the right pet. But none of these things last. None of these things last. Why are we so passionate about the things that do not matter? And we are so We lack passion for the things that do matter. For the things that are eternal. 10,000 years from now, it's really not going to matter what your handicap was on the golf course. 10 million years from now, no one's going to care what you drove for those 10 years. 10 billion years from now, it won't matter that a referee made a lousy call that ruined your team's chance at winning a game. But you know what's going to matter 10 billion years from now? There are going to be two things that last 10 billion years from now. One, did you submit your life to following Jesus Christ through repentance and faith? And two, did you share that message with others? Ten billion years from now, those are the only things that are going to matter because ten billion years from now, those who are enjoying the glorious presence of the Father will be no closer to an end than they are to the beginning. But ten billion years from now, those who are suffering... And the torment of the darkness and the fire of hell. Our scripture teaches that the worm does not die. Will be no closer to the end than they are to the beginning. We must treasure what God treasures. And we must share the message of hope found in Jesus Christ while there is still time. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you've heard me say this a lot now. But evangelism is the most urgent function of the church because it is the only function of the church that we will not continue on into eternity. We must do it now. Another scholar said, the good news of Jesus Christ is only good news when it gets there on time. So let us rearrange our lives to prioritize not these simple things, not tournament ball, not whatever it is that that we try to find comfort and leisure and all those kind of things. No, let's prioritize the eternal things. Let's prioritize the things that matter. Let's sacrifice of ourselves in order that a few more may be crammed through that narrow gate. But here is the reality. Here's the reality. We won't do any of this until we value 
God supremely. We won't do any of this until we value God supremely. The lesson God teaches Jonah here in Jonah chapter 4 is to value what he values by valuing him above all else. And then in doing so, our obedience becomes pleasing to God. This book ends very peculiarly. It's a strange book. We've already discussed that. But God ends this book how He ends no other book that I know of in Scripture. He ends it with a question. And we don't know what Jonah's response is to this question. But we do know that God's Word always demands a response. And so I will leave you with the question. Do you value what God values? Are you more concerned with the temporal or are you more concerned with the eternal? And do you treasure God supremely? Do you love God more than anything else in this whole entire world? Do you love God supremely? See, Scripture teaches us, Jesus tells us, that He is the pearl of great price. And when we were in the field and we found Him, we went and we sold all our possessions in order that we might buy this field, that we may have Christ, because He is more valuable to us than anything else in the whole world. Is Jesus, is God, more valuable to you than anything else in this whole world. And if not, turn to Him in repentance, Christians. And if not, turn to Him in repentance, lost people. You need Jesus. How will you respond to Him today? Let's pray. God, I love you.